1: Welcome to
2: Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And uh, Chen Lin, my partner, also publishes a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, I need to remind you and, and inform you that, in fact, if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter, now is the time to do it. Because Chen will be accepting new subscribers over the first couple of weeks of the new quarter beginning tomorrow on July 1st. But you do need to go to miningstocks.com, put your name on the waiting list, and then you'll uh, receive an email uh, probably as early as tomorrow uh, inviting you to join up for Chen's newsletter, to sign up for his letter. Um, if you have questions regarding Chen or my service you can uh, again go to miningstocks.com that's the first place to go if you still have questions you can call us during normal working hours here in New York at 718-457-1426 718-457-1426 I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel I want to also invite you to continue sending along your questions to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com questions a number for taylor at gmail.com questions comments criticisms praises what have you uh, we like to know what's on your mind also uh, feel free to follow me on twitter at j taylor media j-a-y taylor media We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable, our sponsors for today's show, the last show in this quarter, uh, and then we start the summer quarter uh, next week. Our sponsors are Carlisle Goldfields, Oren Resources, and Cornerstone Capital Resources. Before I talk about the uh, agenda, agenda for today's show, I just want to pass along a comment or two about Bitgold. Uh, first of all, if you have not listened to my complete interview with James Turk and Roy Sabog, I would encourage you to go to J. Taylor Media, jaytaylormedia.com and click on the Bitgold Explained banner, upper right-hand corner of the site, and there you can listen to my extended interview with both James Turk and Roy Sabog. Bitgold has in place the software needed to do everything that PayPal does, but to do it better do it more efficiently and less expensively than PayPal. And it can do that because it uses gold rather than fiat money for reasons that I think will become clear if you listen to the interview. What convinces me that Bitgold has a tremendous potential ahead of it uh, is because it doesn't rely on ideological claims for gold. It doesn't require people to be gold bugs like yours truly. But in fact, uh, what it does is provides for a faster, easier, less expensive uh, payment system than even PayPal. So uh, this is why I think the company is well financed. It has a very strong management team. I think Bitgold has a chance to uh, uh, to really do extremely well. And it will be trading in the United States very shortly. You can buy it in Canada under the symbol XAU right now. Uh, actually, a couple of big news events, uh, news announcements since last week when we talked to Bitgold. They are going to be... Um, Well, just today they announced that they are, in fact, hiring uh, PayPal, uh, an ex-executive from PayPal, uh, Darrell McMullen, uh, he was a senior vice. Actually, he was uh, former head of PayPal Canada, and uh, he will be hired by BitGold as the senior vice president, and chief operating officer. Also, it was announced—I uh, think it was last Friday—that BitGold now uh, is in business for Americans, uh, and that is coming sooner than we thought. There may be some products that are not yet available from BitGold, but pretty soon you'll be able to to uh, do everything in the United States that anyone else can around the world. Well, I've titled today's show "Housing Recovery?" Question mark? Nah, it's just spiking mortgage rates. Well, that was taken from a uh, title written of, of a uh, of an essay written by John Rubino, our main guest today. Um, and uh, John will have a lot more to say to us, I think, than just uh, the housing market uh, discussion. There's a lot of other things that we want to talk to him about. Um, Sean Wallace of uh, who is uh, who is the um, who's a head, who heads up Oren Resources, was scheduled to be with us again today. And for the second week in a row, he wasn't able to make it. And that's really because he's been involved in a very important uh, arrangement in, uh, uh, with Oren uh, in fact, to, uh, to combine with a company uh, in Nunavut, in fact, uh, the company uh, that they were going to be earning their share from, North Country, uh, is, is the name of the company. Anyway, the press release came out earlier today, but uh, not early enough for Sean to be with us. Uh, the announcement that Aaron will acquire 100% of North Country shares for 13.8 million shares of Arun, uh based at $1.48 per share. Uh, Assuming the deal does go through, that will give Oren 100% uh, interest in the Committee Bay project and none of it. And I think this is an extremely exciting project uh, located up there where a lot of great discoveries are being made far north and far away from civilization in which the easy uh, near-surface high-grade gold mineralization has not yet been uh, located and discovered and produced. Uh, but as a shareholder myself, I find this to be a most exciting announcement for uh, reasons that I think will become apparent if you listen to what Sean Wallace has to say next week when he's scheduled to come on the show, and I expect he will, be, in fact, be with us next week. Though Sean cannot be with us today I'm pleased to tell you that Gene Epstein who writes a regular column for Barron's and who edits the uh, the book review section for that prestigious paper will join me in just a few minutes after a first commercial break and Gene will provide a preview of this month of this week's uh, well actually of this month's New York City Junto meeting uh, which I plan to attend and hope that some of you listening will attend as well there'll be a, a debate there and then there will be a vote from the group that attends on uh, on which side prevailed. Uh, the topic, uh, the resolution will be sustaining American security, freedom, and prosperity will require a greater assertion of geopolitical leadership and military power. Affirming that position will be Thomas Donnelly of the American Enterprise Institute, and opposing that view will be Christopher Preble of the Cato Institute. On Jean will also have some things uh, in a few minutes to say. To us, I think about uh, unemployment, uh, the statistics and what they might mean, uh, why men aren't working as much as they once did and so forth. We'll have a lot of interesting things uh, Gene will have to tell us in the short time that we have with him. Then again, our main guest at about half past the hour is John Rubino. John will talk uh, will join me to talk about the housing market That's one thing that he wrote about uh, but I think much more than that uh, in fact uh, given the um, the news that's going on right now, the Greek financial crisis, uh John will have some things to say about bit gold, I think. Uh, the Chinese Accumulation of Gold and Gold Mines, he's written about recently, and how that might relate to the Greek financial tragedy that's occurring right now uh, before our eyes. And, uh, you know, what, what uh, will John have to say about those topics? I think very important uh, the sort of notion of greed and fear. Greed coming from the Chinese side and fear coming from uh, the Greek side. So these are two emotions that, of course, drive investors and uh, cause us to make a lot of mistakes sometimes in our investing, uh, in our investing lives. So we do, um, we do have to go to break now, and uh, but don't go away because when we come back, Gene Epstein will be with us uh, to talk about the upcoming New York City Junto event. Uh, And uh, a lot more. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Where
1: infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pittable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake.
0: million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Gene Epstein. He's been uh, absent from this show for a couple of uh, a couple of months now, I guess, and so it's really good to have him back with us. Gene, for those of you who may not know Gene, I can't imagine there's too many of you out there who don't know and recognize his name because he's been a longtime writer with uh, with Barron's. He writes the Economic Beat column and also does a great job of, uh, of reviewing Books uh, for that uh, prestigious publication. And uh, Gene also heads up something called the New York City Junto, which I've mentioned to you uh, most every month here on this show. Uh, that's held. It's free of charge. It's a meeting anyone can go to. Starts at 730 at 20 West 44th Street in New York City between 5th and 6th Avenues. And always a great, uh, a great venue. And Gene Epstein does a fantastic job of keeping an orderly discussion, spirited, orderly, and sometimes contentious, but always enjoyable and informative. So thanks for joining me again, Gene. It's good to have you with me again. Pleasure to be back. Yeah, uh, it really is good to have you. I, wanna, I want you to tell us a little bit about what is coming up this uh, Thursday uh, at the Juneto meeting. We have a debate, and it has to do with geopolitics. Talk to us a little bit
4: about that. Yeah, it's going to be another um, Oxford-style debate in that um, there will be a resolution and um, a vote by uh, people uh, before and after. The resolution, as agreed upon by both parties, uh, is uh, that sustaining American security, freedom, and prosperity will require a greater assertion of geopolitical leadership and military power. Now, speaking for the resolution will be uh, Thomas Donnelly of the American Enterprise Institute. American Enterprise Institute actually... Um, is uh, in a way famously uh, uh, the uh, think tank that essentially uh, thought up the Iraqi war and designed it Uh, and uh, Thomas Donnelly is a co-author of a book called Lessons for a Long War How America Can Win on New Battlefields Uh, so he will be speaking for the resolution uh, that a step up in uh, military power by the U.S. is necessary for our security. Freedom and prosperity. Speaking against the resolution would be Cato, Cato Institute senior fellow Christopher Preble. <laughs> Excuse me. He's the author of The Power Problem: How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less mm. Prosperous, and Less Free. <laughs> now, um, I guess you can hear from the titles of those books how very much at odds our two debaters are going to be on uh, American military power, and I think it is interesting in that this is one of the key debates between a free market people who call themselves conservatives and free-market people who call themselves libertarians the libertarians do tend to be strongly non-interventionist the conservatives um, and I might add the American Enterprise Institute I think is uh, a bastion of the free market in many ways but it is indeed uh, conservative in the in the at least the, the sense that conservative has any meaning today that they do favor um, and support uh, um, American intervention abroad. And so uh, it will be, um, again, a very contentious fight, but uh, both of the guys, Donnelly and, uh, and Preble, know each other personally, and uh, it will always be civil. Well, the audience is going to get a chance to challenge them, ask questions during the debate, and uh, then, as mentioned, they will be able to vote for the resolution, against the resolution, or undecided about the resolution before the debate begins. And after the debate ends, we're going to take another vote from the same audience, and whoever moves the needle wins uh, the debate. That's uh, that's a typical um, uh, process, and I think it's a very good one since the before and after then uh, is uh, is the way in which uh, the two debaters can uh, can affect the outcome. So it should be pretty exciting, and I hope people come uh, Thursday evening, July second. And it's again, uh, people don't even often ask me, is it free? Yes, it is indeed. Free? Do you need to to RSVP? No, you don't. Just walk in. It's ground floor, uh, twenty West Forty Fourth Street, just off Fifth Avenue. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it, Gene. That's for sure. And I, mm-hmm. uh,
2: I, I believe that these are taped, aren't they? They're recorded, and people can actually okay. listen to these discussions online. Is, do they go to NYCJunto.org? Is that where they go for that? Or that's where?
4: correct. Yes, I have uh, I have your show on my on my on my uh, smartphone as a podcast. Uh-huh. And I listened to that, and indeed, all of the all the Trento events going back more than a year, including a lecture I delivered, for example, on the Piketty uh, book, Piketty's book, yes. Capital in the 20s, is available online. We had uh, a uh, debate uh, between John Mackey and Nina Tasholz on on food, uh, and uh, this is the second Oxford style debate we're, we're having. The third is going to be in October, and that's going to be on, uh, on, on uh, anarcho-capitalism, that's another contentious debate between certain elements who are libertarian and others. And uh, Richard Epstein, who's a prominent libertarian, is going, to, is going to defend a limited government, whereas Michael Humer, um, who's an anarcho capitalist philosopher, is going to defend anarcho capitalism. That should be exciting as well. But this time it's going to be foreign policy. Oh, it's going to and be indeed, both of us. My- everything is available on, on, as you mentioned, on podcast. if you can just put in Junto into your, uh, into your smartphone.
2: Oh, that's that's really great, and I know I uh, I know where I come down from this, Gene, and I'm I just wondering, you know, so you're looking for the swing vote here, because mm-hmm. I'm imagining, and I know a lot of the folks at the New York City Junto, I know a lot of them are, are more, uh, you know, would certainly be inclined to go with Thomas Donnelly, and then there are others, I suppose, that are there, there more are. like myself that will go with, uh, be inclined to go with uh, Mr. Preble, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know... Um, We'll see. I, I I think we we all want to try to keep an open mind, uh, but mm-hmm. sometimes our our very basic philosophies make it very difficult sometimes to cross that line. I suppose. I mean, I have uh, a Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity that yeah. comes on and does podcasts with me all the time, and you know he's giving me a version of what's happening in the world that is completely different than what we get in the mainstream media for the most for the most part. And uh, it's mm-hmm. a you know I mean somebody's got to be right, somebody's got to be wrong on these things, so I really look forward to this, Gene, and mm-hmm. thanks so much for uh, for doing such a great job as you do with these with these discussions and keeping it civil and all that. want to mm-hmm. ask you a little bit about a couple of the ideas that you've passed on and are planning to pass on to your readers at Barron's mm-hmm. uh, having to do uh, with employment or unemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, uh, the, you mentioned, uh, I think, in your in a recent article that you wrote on the fifteenth of June, uh, mm-hmm. job demand warms up but supply lacks jolt. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has a statistic called job openings and labor turnover, or jolts, for short. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us uh, about this statistic, and what is it telling you now about our labor uh, situation in the United States?
4: Well. It- it, it is uh, it is telling us, as you say, it's called JOLTS. It's been compiled since the year two thousand. Um, this uh, monthly number, uh, which uh, which takes a snapshot at the end of each month on the number of available jobs, and uh, all of these uh, measures are imperfect, but uh, but the trend is certainly uh, very telling. And uh, what it found was that at the end of April, the most recent number available, in and in a, in next week we're going to have an update on the May figure. But at the end of April, um, the number of available jobs was at uh, a high for this series at 5.4 million, and, um, and that indicated that jobs are reasonably plentiful. But um, we also found, though, that, that the number of hires is lagging we find a sort of anomalous situation that that uh, usually in terms of the trend on the number of hires in relation to that 5, four, four million, there should have been many more hires, at least in terms of the, of the 15-year trend that the, that the data exposed. And yet we have relatively uh, a, a big lag in hires in relation to available jobs, and that seems to indicate actually that there's a kind of a tight labor market. We read um, anecdotal Evidence uh, stories in the journal about builders trying to uh, trying to hire workers uh, and finding uh, it difficult uh, to get uh, willing hands, and so it's an odd, a very different perspective on what is commonly thought of as going on in the labor market. That jobs are hard to get. In fact, it looks as though. Based upon these numbers, that jobs are reasonably plentiful, uh, but that uh, the skills, the geography, or maybe some other some other attitudes on the part of people is that uh, they're reluctant uh, to take these jobs. Now, I don't moralize about that. That probably, maybe, that means that uh, that is that the second earner in the family wants to get a higher wage. If uh, and and I think that probably signals that wages are going to rise, which I think basically at this point is a good thing. Wages have been uh, have not risen in very quickly. But at least that's different from the way uh, the New York Times tends to portray, for example, the, the progressive press, uh, the, the left-leaning press, tends to portray what is going on in the labor market. And certainly, uh, I've been reporting for the last year or so that there has been, excuse me, I've, I've been a distressing decline in labor force participation, a certain lack of interest in getting a job that's uh, unusually strong of late. Uh, there are reasons for it. There's certainly the, uh, the huge increase in the number of people who now get disability. I believe that uh, you, if you go on disability, you can get an, av- you get an average of about 1200 a month in money for the rest of your life, and you can also get uh, health benefits. And uh, I, I believe that uh, it's fairly clear that a lot of people, the data show, a lot of people uh, who are prime age have gone on disability. Probably what uh, they are doing is in some ways supplementing their income in the in the uh, below ground, in the cash economy. Um, but uh, it's not, you can get by on that amount, and certainly if you supplement, you can also manage it. It's something that Charles Murray, for example, the conservative critic uh, who wrote years ago, wrote Losing Ground, who's not afraid to say things that are politically incorrect, who points out that uh, that just when you would have thought over the last 30 years that we'd have a lower share of, of workers on disability, because the dangerous work has declined, the dangerous work that does exist is less dangerous than it ever was, and yet we have had a huge increase in the numbers and in the share of people on disability, mainly because the rules have been uh, have become even more lax. Another economist named Kate Casey Mulligan, a labor market economist, has bravely pointed out that Obamacare is uh, is bringing uh, uh, disincentives to work as well making it in certain ways more expensive to have a full-time job than to have a part-time job. The increase in the number of part-time and also employers are p- pulling in their horns uh, because of, uh, of Obamacare mm-hmm. and uh, they are pr- it looks as though they're not offering uh, full-time employment the way they might have in the past. So a lot of bad things are going on in the labor market uh, and uh, it's often been overlooked, even overlooked. Of course, by my some, many of my fellow libertarians, who like to argue that things are terrible uh, yeah. all around. Uh, in fact, uh, it's it's uh, the, the jobs definitely, as as mentioned. Maybe the wages ain't great, but uh, it's it's difficult to imagine that any unemployed person cannot find a job pretty quickly if that person really wanted a job. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way,
2: and I can't hap- help but think, Gene, as I listened to you talk there about mm-hmm. the differences uh, between now and the 1930s. So trying to yeah. make any comparison just doesn't make sense because there's all kinds of reasons now, uh, I think, that for not working where it might not have been in place in the 1930s as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. And and also you have um, you have two wage earners for the most part now, whereas in the 1930s I think mostly uh, in, at least in um, married households the um, uh, the wife would be at home and so forth. So you you are preparing I think with a couple of minutes left here right. I believe Gene yeah. you're you're writing something this coming weekend perhaps it touches on the male uh, participation. Well it will be
4: out, well it'll be out in a uh, w- well I, I commented uh, recently on I I sent this sent-, sent you this. Uh, the, the it's a, it's a large, This is a fascinating large issue which we should discuss sometime in the future. There is this idea, an odd uh, kind of idea, looming in uh, the Atlantic. Uh, devoted a huge cover story to it uh, this past week in the August that's in the August issue about the, uh, the about the future of work. That work is work is disappearing. Uh, robots are taking over. And uh, and made the odd point that that men can't find work. That's you know that's the. Uh-huh. That, Men, men can I find work. And, uh, and, and apparently it's because men cannot find manufacturing jobs and it's said that, that they can't find jobs for which they are best suited and it, you know, says, and now that's all that in itself is, is probably a myth you know the idea that men loved manufacturing work and, uh, and, they, and <laughs> that's kind of silly uh, that used to be terrible manufacturing now they mourn manufacturing but then they say yeah. well men are not working they're not in the labor force because they can't find jobs for which they are best suited so I commented that well in the growth up world and in the grown-up world even of the 1960s and 1950s, certainly 1930s, of course we all want a job for which we are best suited, but, <laughs> but in order to support ourselves and support our families, sometimes we'll take jobs that are, that are just second best and third best uh, since, uh, we, since we all have to get by in this world. But the point is that that, ki- that kind of ethos uh, that expressed in this article was rather surprising, that, uh, that men desert the labor force because they're not getting the jobs for which they are best suited and uh, so I, I only made that point that there is clearly a decline in the culture and that it probably if we look to disability roles, we look to other things that are going on in the culture, we'll probably get the answer as to why fewer people are working, not because the work is disappearing and not because men are not getting jobs for which they are best suited, which, is, which indeed was the, was the point that the Atlantic uh, uh, cover story stressed. So that, yeah. that the progressives are not gonna be able Teach us anything about what's going on in the world of work, um, unfortunately. Well, yeah, that's a, it. Is a complicated uh, picture for sure, Jean,
2: and I thank you very mm-hmm. much for helping to clarify it and, and bring out some of the dynamics that are there that that explain uh, explain what seems to be maybe something that seems to be worse than it actually is. So I, I think mm-hmm. you're, and you, and you also mentioned here with just a minute left or so, you mm-hmm. uh, in your June fifteenth article, you did mention that in fact uh, consumer spending does seem to be picking up, which would be in line with the, with a tighter labor
4: market, I would I would guess in line with tighter labor market. Wealth is picking up. I mean, you know, it, I'm I'm not. I mean, definitely the the economy moves from boom from boom to bust, but it does appear, and indeed, I I, I believe that we are, as conventionally measured. Uh, in a, in a situation where growth is probably uh, running 3.5%, which ain't great, it's not nearly uh, what the U.S. economy could do or what the U.S. economy has done in the past. But 3.5% is better than the economy uh, than, the, than the economy has done so far during the expansion. It, the expansion that began in mid 2009. So indeed, I do see um, I do see some silver lining um, going on uh, at, in the economy at this point. Well, that's good news, Gene. We we yeah. like to
2: have you on now and then, just to keep us from becoming I'm so I'm depressed, clinically exactly. depressed, and they have to take us
4: away. So, for me.
2: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Gene. We're sure. we're out of time. Thanks for sure. uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Really, greatly appreciated. And I look forward to seeing you at the New York City, June twenty, West Forty Fourth Street, seven thirty this coming Thursday, folks. All of you out there, as many as live in this area, please come and visit, uh, attend this uh, event. It's you're you're not going to. You're certainly going to enjoy it if you do. Thank you, Gene, for being with us. And folks, don't go away. We'll be right back after the commercial break with John Rubino. Uh, he's going to talk about bit gold, China, uh, the insatiable hunger to gobble up gold mines by China, the Greek crisis, and, and various other things, uh, including the housing market. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino.
0: Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest, financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again John Robino, who runs the popular financial website DollarCollapse.com. And, well, he's a co-author with James Turk uh, of The Collapse of the Dollar, and how to profit from it, probably uh, the best-selling book, uh, I would guess, that John has been involved with. But he's written a number of others called uh, One is Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom. And that, that would really be a topic I'd like to talk to John about sometime, perhaps. How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust and mainstream uh, Main Street, not Wall Street. A uh, number of books John's written, and he also writes right now, uh, he contributes to the CFA magazine, He's written in the past for thestreet.com, Individual Investor, Online Investor, consumer, uh, and Consumer Digest, among many other publications. So uh, it's really good to have you back. John, thanks for joining me today.
5: Hi, Jay. Good to be back.
2: Always good to talk to you um, and get your insights. And the hot topic of the moment, of course, is Greece. Uh, where is this thing going to go, John? How, how will it be resolved, or, or will it even eventually be resolved? Well,
5: someday it has to be resolved, right? It can't go on forever, but it has been going on since at least 2011. Uh, I I went back through things that have appeared on on dollarclass.com about Greece, and, and even back then, it was this huge incipient crisis. And uh, it, it's gone out and in of uh, the headlines ever since. And, and uh, it, it looks like it might, this time around, be finally resolved one way or the other, but it's still not clear what's gonna happen because they're still negotiating a bailout. Um, what happened over the weekend was that uh, the talks broke down one more time and the Greeks have now defaulted on a debt payment to the IMF and they've closed their banks. So we basically have capital controls in place in Greece now. So what that means is that we've taken a huge step towards something. Either um, Greece leaves the Eurozone, goes back to the drachma, and, uh, and kind of resets the clock to the 1990s, or um, the Eurozone um, caves and allows Greece... To have some money in the short run to pay its bills without having to cut its, what the Eurozone thinks is extremely generous pension plans.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And so that's not a long term fix. That means Greece will continue to spend more than it takes in and pile up debt, and another crisis will, will happen at some point in the future. But it gets us through today, you know? And then and I, I think that's as much as you can hope with today's financial world. You know, you can't fix this no. without a gigantic crisis. You know, whether we're talking about the US or Japan or or the Eurozone or any specific Eurozone country, you know, none of this is fixable because we borrowed way too much money to get out of this painlessly. So all the guys in charge now can really hope for is to get through the next election cycle intact. And so that's probably what it's gonna come down to. Either, um, either they do a deal that puts the resolution off for another year, or they just let it fall apart today and, and get it over with. But uh, I, I think the fact that we got to the point of capital controls is pretty instructive here because that means the, these guys are fairly serious. You know, they're willing to endure some pain and some uncertainty without caving. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the political pain must have
2: re- reached some sort of a threshold to allow this uh, the current the current government in and and to and to really insist on what's going on. There must be enough pain out there now with uh, with what the Euroland is exacting on the Greek people to allow this politically this hard hard uh, stance to be to take place, right?
5: Well, it, it's important in this in the political sphere to understand the, what debt does. You know, when you've borrowed too much money, your country becomes ungovernable,
4: mm-hmm.
5: and there there aren't any politically acceptable options. Politically acceptable options um, at some point, you know, and we we haven't hit that yet in the U.S. We came close in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when the government uh, spent trillions and trillions of dollars to bail out the big banks who um, the guys in charge then cut themselves record bonuses that that next year. Now that yeah. politically could have been a catastrophe for the guys in charge but somehow they got through it. you know somehow we, we let them stay in office uh, despite basically handing several trillion of our dollars to Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase, you know with no strings attached. Right. Um, but in Europe right now, the, the guys in charge of Greece, for instance, got elected on a platform of no more austerity. So for them to take uh, a deal that requires austerity from the Eurozone means they get kicked out of office and sure. probably replaced by some kind of radical right-wing party um, that, uh, that will cause turmoil in a different kind of way, but uh, turmoil nonetheless. And for the, uh, the people running the Eurozone to cave on Greece means basically that they have to hand a a lot of German money to the Greeks. And that's probably politically unpalatable and maybe completely unsustainable for the guys in charge of Germany. So there's no way out of this without regime change in the next election for a lot of these guys. And that's what they're looking at. They're trying to figure out how to get reelected. And there's no clear way, you know, there, there's no guarantee right now, no matter what you choose, that it's going to work for you in the next election. And that's why they're dithering, because uh, they, they don't know what the safest route to re-election is. And there's nothing at all that's guaranteed. Uh, I will say one thing, though. this uh, The fact that Greece has actually closed its banks, has actually locked people's money into their bank accounts and not allowed them to take it out. Um, is very, very important for the rest of the Eurozone because now everybody's looking around thinking, well, if that can happen to Greece, who's next? So if you had money in an Italian bank account, would you leave it there this week or would you be taking it out and and sending it to Germany or Switzerland or someplace like that even if you have to take negative interest rates Mm -hmm. at least it's going to stay in euros and not be converted to lira at some point in the not too distant future Mm -hmm. so I think the big risk now no matter what happens with Greece one way or the other the big risk is that the contagion uh, the the lack of confidence spreads to the rest of the, uh, the eurozone periphery and that investors and savers lose faith in Spanish banks and Italian banks and Portuguese banks. And that, that spreads to the point where the numbers are just too big to fix. You know, Greece could you, you could buy all of Greece for what the, uh, the European Central Bank spends on quantitative easing for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you can't do that with Italy. That's, we're up in trillions of euros at that point. And um, so it becomes impossible to manage if it spreads beyond greece and that's i think what they're really worried about you know they they don't want a widespread contagion um to shake the peripheral banking system across the board because there's no fix for that eurozone really will spin out of control you know, if uh, if italy finds itself in the same boat as greece a year from now that's it's game over for the eurozone yeah and you know it's not clear that's avoidable it, it might be something that has to happen because of the fatal flaws inherent in the structure of the common currency you know and, and maybe you just can't fix it starting from here uh, but one possible fix is basically um, converging into a United States of Europe with one central government uh, and one central budget and one, you know, military and all the rest. Um, Of course, that means Germany's in charge of Europe. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Europeans don't like that idea either, you know, and and I'm sure a lot of Germans (laughs) don't like it themselves because that means being responsible for Italy's debts. And who in their right mind wants to do that, you know, and so, so it's not clear how this Works out, except that while we're trying to figure it out, we, as a you know global financial system, continue to accumulate more and more debt. Debt, as a percent of GDP, continues to go up in the developed world, and it was already unsustainably high in 1999. <laughs> so yes. it's, it's gone up continuously since then, and so the eventual resolution of this, you know, how how much pain we have to take in order to get back to um, a sustainable, manageable financial system. Grows daily, and so we're not saving ourselves in any meaningful way by pushing this stuff off into the future, because we continue to borrow money, and the eventual crisis is going to be that much worse, and so...
2: Yeah, so. that's exactly right. That's what that, that's what we've been doing, of course, uh, to a greater and greater extent. I think faster and faster now since two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and uh, the pathology is is not growing in a straight line, in my view, but is growing almost exponentially. But uh, John, just quickly, who would who would then do you think would be hurt? Or helped most in Greece, and then who would be hurt or helped most in, in Euroland uh, outside of Greece if well, Greece left the Union? Uh, the well European. the immediate
5: victims of a um, Grexit, you know, Greece going back to mm-hmm. the drachma, would be the people who still have Euro denominated bank accounts in Greece mm-hmm. because they, they've lost half their money. You know, if, if, to go back to the, the drachma and have it uh, have any chance of working, you've got to devalue the drachma dramatically versus the euro. So, right. so let's say you take a 50% haircut on your bank account, um, then that means your savings partially evaporated. So the, yeah. the people who worked hard and put away some money instead of spending it, they're the victims of this. And that's that's the, the first set of victims. And the second set, in the short run, uh, would be the businesses that those people who have those drachma bank accounts would have frequented you know if you um, if you lose half your money in your bank account you're not going to go out to eat um very often and you're not going to buy new toys and take vacations and so those companies suffer to the extent that the population of the country gets poorer Mm -hmm. so so greece gets poorer in the short run now the question is does a cheap currency make them this tourism magnet for the whole world. You know, all of us are going to want to go and, and hang out on Greek beaches and spend next to nothing because the drachma is so cheap. And it could be that they get this tsunami of tourist money coming in mm-hmm. in years two, three, and four uh, and that, that saves them, you know, so that they, uh, they return to not exactly a balanced budget. I think that's culturally impossible for Greece, but, uh, you know, a, a deficit that can be managed for the next decade, let's say, you know, before it blows up again. Uh, So they could go back to that, and and that would be, you know, in in Mediterranean, Europe terms, a success story. So that that could happen. Now, the the Europeans, Mm -hmm. the reason that this current Greek crisis is different from the one of 2011 is that uh, back then, big commercial banks owned all that Greek debt. And so for Greek to have defaulted back then, then the Deutsche Bank and um, Society Generale and the other big European banks would have had to take huge write-downs and they would have become unstable and maybe insolvent and you would have had a banking crisis. Well, in the ensuing four years, um, the Eurozone has moved all of that Greek debt onto the balance sheets of the central banks. Hmm. So the European Central Bank and the IMF basically own all the, the debt that's in question right now. So they take a hit if uh, greece defaults but it's really taxpayers who take the hit it's not the big commercial banks and you know from the point of view of these governments that are run by these commercial banks this is much much preferable because uh, you kind of spread it out over the the taxpayers of the country and the holders of euros when when you have to create new euros to cover the the deficit Um, the value of the euro goes down so you inflate away your debts in that way, which is relatively painless for governments and for the big banks. So that Europe wouldn't suffer immediately from a Greek default in any kind of meaningful way because they just, they'll, they'll print whatever they need to, to cover whatever contingencies arise. Uh, the big risk for Europe is that we all start looking around for who's next. You know, if, yeah. uh, if Greece leaves, then why can't Italy leave? Because they're in almost as bad a shape as Greece financially. And that is a much much harder problem for the eurozone to solve. So you you take one step down the road of dissolution if Greece mm-hmm. leaves. Yeah, I mean, well that's, that's what terrifies what them.
2: And that's the terrifies the central banks, I suppose, and and probably the uh, explains why the central banks are trying, really seem to be trying really hard to hold this thing together, I suppose. But uh, very very interesting. Well, I have to wonder, you know, to what extent. You know, Putin is uh, the Greek government seems to be uh, listening to Vladimir Putin, who would like to put his pipeline through Greece. Uh, Do you think that the Greeks are just perhaps using him as a as a posturing tool uh, against uh, against Euroland?
5: Is a leveraging probably part of the equation back then? You know, they they probably thought that uh, cozying up to Russia would light a fire under the uh, the IMF and the ECB and get them a better deal. And uh, it, it, it didn't work, but um, should Greece leave the Eurozone, there's probably no reason why they can't do trade deals with Russia. You know, they're going to need money, they're going to be... Um, in turmoil, and somebody with um, a few billion euros to um, to hand them will probably be their friend, <laughs> no matter who it is. And so, yeah, you, you could easily see Russia take advantage of this. And, um, you know what, uh, That that's what NATO deserves, in my opinion. Yeah. When you start with uh, the Ukraine just recently, where we tried to um, we, we tried to fold the Ukraine, which is right on Russia's border and, and has a um, a naval base that Russia needs, we tried to fold them into NATO, which is to for, to Russianize um, a um, hostile military alliance. True. And so I, I think from Putin's point of view, doing trade deals with Greece would not nearly be, a, be as extreme a behavior as what we did with Ukraine. And it but would also be a little bit of poetic justice.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: So, yeah, it wouldn't be a surprise to see it happen. But I, I don't think it would... Um, I don't think in the long run it would be that big of a deal because trade flows are, you know, that, that's a force for peace most of the time. Sure. And to the extent that you've got a, a pipeline running through a country, you don't want to bomb that country, you know? And and to the extent that uh, somebody's got a pipeline running through your country, you don't want to antagonize the guys sending um, natural gas or whatever through your pipeline and paying you fees for it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, trade deals with Russia, even when there are some strings attached and uh, and um, maybe a little too much dependency in the future, I, I think on balance are still probably a good thing. And and so not that big of a deal in the scheme of things. You know, the U.S.-Russian relations are the, uh, the really scary thing right now. I think the Europeans left to themselves would accommodate Russia and Russia would accommodate Europe and and. And that would be more or less okay. So the U.S. is kind of the uh, the really bellicose yeah, player. I- I couldn't, I, I couldn't agree with you more
2: about that, John. Uh, that, that's uh, certainly we, something we talked to Dan and McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity on a regular basis. And uh, uh, Changing topics a little bit here, you wrote about the housing recovery. You're suggesting uh, the, the numbers, the strong numbers that we saw recently are probably not what they're cracked up to be or that they are good, but they're just because people are really fearful of a rising interest rate, rising mortgage rates. So they're hurrying off to try to lock in some, uh, some financing now and get their deals done now. Is that, is that the, the basically in a nutshell what you were saying on your 23rd of June article titled Housing Recovery?
5: Yeah, the housing numbers have gotten much better lately, but it's come at the same time that interest rates have been going up, so mortgages have been getting more expensive. And, and historically, those two things kind of go together for a while. For instance, if the mortgage rates are going up, which they have so far this year, they've gone from mid 3% to low 4% a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, um, and you're a potential buyer, that's scary to you because it's, it's raising the cost of these houses that you thought you might put an offer in, but you were dithering about. Uh, so, so it lights a fire under you, you know, and you, you think, well, all right, let me lock in 4.1% then before it goes to 5%. And then you make an offer on a house. So, so a house gets sold. Uh, same thing if you're a seller, you know, you've been holding out for the best possible price, but you see mortgage rates going up, which is causing the number of qualified buyers for your house at your ideal price to shrink. And so that makes you nervous. So maybe you cut your price a little bit and get the deal done, you know? So, so you see a burst of activity when interest rates start to go up, uh, but it's not necessarily sustainable. If it, all it's doing is taking uh, future sales and moving them to the current month or whatever. Yeah. Oh, and so,
2: okay. It's, it's like what we did with uh, you know when the when the government encourages to uh, to trade in our old cars our junkers uh, for new cars and stuff right so it's
5: that's it's exactly really, uh, what's happening in the auto market in the last few years you know we we are um, stretching out the um, maturity of auto loans and lending money to people who didn't used to qualify so we're we're selling a lot of cars but we're doing it at the cost of lower sales in the future because if you've got a seven year car loan you're not really? going to be trading in that car anytime soon because you are underwater from day one yeah. and it takes you years of payments to get back to where you could sell your car for enough to cover the loan. And until that happens, it, you're, you're not going to have an incentive to sell that car because you're instantly down a few thousand dollars. So we're, we're locking a lot of people into basically car mortgages well, it seems to me, John, what we're doing is
2: essentially what the Greeks are doing. We're kicking the can down the road. It's just oh, a, another ad. But the advantage that the United States has and why I think we're so involved in so many wars is to, uh, is to keep the existing petrodollar system in place. Uh, the Greeks can't print money like we can. Uh, and do things like we can, not even the European Union is, is able so easily to create money, although I guess they're doing it now more so. Uh, but um, so we're really back, back to the same problem, aren't we? The whole, the whole world has gotten accustomed to living beyond its means because of this thing called debt. It's consuming today uh, what you have not yet earned uh, to consume.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we've been doing this for thirty years now. We've been um, uh, borrowing money from our, for our from our grandkids in order to have fun today, basically. Right.
2: And it's growing, and it's and it's not a straight line thing. It's it seems to me something that's growing faster and faster. You have to keep keep this ball rolling faster in order to just to hold just to stand still almost in your living standards. It seems because your because your debt is is even with these low interest rates, your debt is starting to consume so much of your income.
5: Yeah. So so two things about that. One is that if interest rates were to go back up, that would be Armageddon for the developed world because um, so much debt out there right now is variable rate in one way or another. Either it's very short term, which means you have to roll it over, or it bounces around based on the prime rate or LIBOR or something else. And um, let interest rates go up and your interest costs go up which means you can spend less on other things, which means growth slows down, which means the governments of the world uh, take in less tax revenue and see their interest costs go up and their budgets explode. So you, you get all of these really bad effects from interest rates going up in a variable rate world, which is what we have now. And the other thing is that as we pile on more and more debt, we're having to go to greater and greater lengths to hide the true size of that debt load. And you know, it used to be 50 years ago, you, you had debt, that you could point to, and it was actual loans, you know, and, and that was the amount of debt that the country had. Well, now we've got unfunded liabilities of uh, Social Security and Medicare, which dwarf the government debt, you know, it triples it or quadruples it, yeah. and we've got derivatives at the big banks, which are a form of debt, you know, they're a liability, but they're hidden by the big banks, and the notional value of uh, the derivatives books of uh, the banks today are uh, around a quadrillion dollars, you know, gotcha. it's, it's enough to vaporize the global financial system if they start to go bad, yes. and, uh, and those things aren't counted as debt, so when we talk about debt, even when we use the, uh, the, the true actual, you know, yeah, conventional number, it's still big, it's still scary, but it, it's maybe one-eighth of the true number, and we're lying about the rest. So we really are
2: lying about the rest, and uh, and I'd be lying if we kept going on here because we're running out of time. We got one minute left. Uh, is it time is is sort of like money, you know, and it uh, it's limited, uh, or it should be limited anyway. Money should be limited. But John, there's so much more to talk to you about. You you wrote an article. Is this gold's long-awaited killer app, and that had to do with BitGold. We had the uh, James Turk and uh, your your buddy James Turk, and also Roy Sabog last week with us. I love this BitGold story. Uh, 30 seconds give me your idea about bit gold what, what are your thoughts about it
5: well i think the uh, the holy grail for um, sound money advocates and gold bugs in particular is a is spendable gold you know some kind of a gold-based payment system where you can store your cash instead of in you know fiat currencies that are being depreciated aggressively by their, their governments in gold and then spend it you know and and that's the goal of Bitgold it's trying to create a payment system that that does that and Mm -hmm. if it works um, that lights a fire under the gold price because Um, oh, I, I think we're out of time. But if we Yeah,
2: say, we, we, can, we are basically okay. out of time, but that's what you're, uh, that's what James Turk always wanted to do, and now mm-hmm. he's teamed up with Roy Sabog, and it's something that I'm going to be talking about a lot on this show, and I invite you back to talk about it, too, uh, because I think it's so important, and I also like this stock a lot, honestly. I think it has potential. If it can do what PayPal can do, uh, but do it better, then I think it might have a real chance uh, for some big success, and as you suggest, John, possibly... Light a fire under the gold price. If people, you know, you don't have to be an ideologue. Uh, the fact that this, if this can work better than PayPal, and less costly and more efficiently for paying for a payment system, then you don't have to be ideologically locked into it. Everybody should want to use it, I would think. And that's what really turns me on about BitGold. What are your Just real quickly, 30 seconds, uh, two, two, yeah, 10 no, seconds. No, no,
5: I, I like that because you, you get a, a, a positive feedback loop if, if this works, where it, you deposit gold in a, a BitGold account. And then if gold's price goes up, your savings account gets more valuable, which makes it more likely that other people are going to deposit gold, which increases right. the demand for gold, and you get this feedback loop that could send gold through the roof. All and, right.
2: We have to leave it at that, but we'll, we'll be talking some more about that. I want to thank you for being with us today. Folks, next week we're going to have Franklin Sanders on with us. If you think that your government is out to help you, to protect you, I think you have a different attitude about that once you listen to Franklin's story, uh, blood-curdling story, he'll tell us next week. Uh, So I hope you'll be back to listen. I want to thank our uh, sponsors. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, my engineer, Matt Widener, and all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade, Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Arico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake.
3: million.